This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We have a lot to cover in this episode, so let's not waste any time. The Motion Picture Academy didn't make any changes to the rules regarding eligibility and voting for the Best Song Award, but there was an important change in the Best Score Award that you need to know about. Instead of having a category that combined the original musicals and musical adaptations into one group, and another category that recognized scores that did not come from musicals, the music branch decided that only original musicals would be considered worthy of award recognition in a category called Original Song Score. That would keep musicals out of the other category, simply called Original Score. In the Academy Annual Report of January 1971, the reasoning for the category renaming was put forth as such. Quote, The new scoring categories reflect changes in motion picture music in recent years, with the dividing line between musicals and non-musical pictures becoming blurred as music and songs are used more and more in pictures that cannot be described as musicals. End quote. In recent years, movies such as The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy were the best examples of the need to redefine the rules. But it wasn't as if there were a large number of these non-musical films using a wealth of songs that fit the plot, but weren't musicals. In fact, the first year of this original song score category had just one film that fit that description of not being a musical, but containing enough original songs to qualify. In any case, This opened the door for Hollywood to put together more original musicals, and we got a few quality nominees for that original song score category. What's interesting about that crop of nominees from 1970 in original song score is that, for better or worse, only two of those got a nomination in the best song category. We'll talk about those two songs, as well as the other three musicals that were good enough to have the entire song score recognized, but didn't have one song worthy of a nomination. The first of those two original song score nominees to also get into the original song category was Scrooge, Leslie Brickus's newest book-to-musical adaptation. The failure of Dr. Doolittle apparently didn't keep Brickus from tackling another beloved British novel, this time A Christmas Carol, and just as Rex Harrison did with Brickus's songs in Dr. Doolittle, Albert Finney sings speaks his way through many of his songs in Scrooge. Roger Ebert wasn't pleased with that, saying in his review that the song, quote, falls so far below the level of good musical comedy that you wish Albert Finney would stop singing in them until you realize he isn't really singing, end quote. I think Roger Ebert only got half of the point of Finney's performance. When his Scrooge is angry or sad, he pretty much does speak through the songs. When he's happy, though, as he is at the end of the film, Scrooge's outright singing. The New York Daily News review said the songs were pleasant, and like other reviews did, pointed out that one song did stand out as exceptional. That song was Thank You Very Much, 
and it's the one that received the Oscar nomination among the 12 songs that Brickus wrote. It's performed twice in the movie, both for very, very different reasons. The first time we hear it is during Scrooge's visit to the future with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And the townspeople are celebrating the news that Scrooge has died. His death means they are released from their debts, and naturally, they want to sing. Tom Jenkins, the man who sells soup on the street, leads the town into singing the song as Scrooge's coffin is carried out of his office. It's a bit morbid to see everyone singing their thanks to Scrooge for dying, but you forget that when the melody catches on. And Scrooge watches all of this, not realizing that the townspeople are celebrating his death. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of all the people who have assembled here, I would merely like to mention, if I may, that our unanimous attitude is one of lasting gratitude for what our friend has done for us tonight. Therefore, I would simply like to say Thank you very much, thank you very much That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me I may sound awful Dutch, but my delight is such I feel as if a losing war's been won for me And if I had a flag, I'd hang me flag at to add a sort of final victory touch But since I left me flag at home I'll simply have to say Thank you very, very, very much Thank you very, very, very much Thank you very much Thank you very much, and that's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. It sounds a bit bizarre, but things the way they are, I feel as if another life's begun for me. And if I had a cannon, I would fire it to add a sort of celebration touch. But since I left me cannon at home, I simply have to say thank you very, very, very much. Once Scrooge realizes that he has died, he begs for forgiveness, wakes up on the present-day Christmas morning, 
and officially releases everyone from their debts. This prompts Tom Jenkins, played by actor Anton Rogers, to sing Thank You Very Much again, this time genuinely thanking Ebenezer Scrooge. The song spills out into the town, resulting in a big production number that eventually culminates in the parade around the town square. Tom Jenkins, Tom Jenkins, about that six pounds you owe me. You agreed to give me a few more days, Mr. Scrooge. I just need you to can keep it. It's my Christmas present to you. God bless you this Christmas day, Mr. Scrooge. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. It sounds a bit bizarre, but things the way they are. I feel as if another life begun for me. And that goes for anyone else who owes me money. You can keep it as of this day. All my I never thought the future would be fun for me.
It's fun to hear many of the rhyming schemes that songwriters cook up in good songs. In the case of Thank You Very Much, the rhymes for much, including such, dutch, and touch, help create great pictures in both versions of the song. According to his autobiography, called Pure Imagination, Brickus wrote the score to Scrooge while hanging out in Mexico with his wife. Stories about actor Steve McQueen and his motorcycle adventures around Mexico fill the pages more than any discussion of creating songs such as Thank You Very Much, so Brickus doesn't give us much insight into his songwriting process, at least not for Scrooge. But he did predict that the movie musical might not last through 1970. It was becoming increasingly clear that film musicals were at their last gasp, he wrote. The dinosaur was dying, to be replaced in the world's affections by low-budget, money-making phenomena like Easy Rider, ready to drive on and take over the cinema screens. End quote. Scrooge wasn't very popular in the United Kingdom, or in the United States, but it did earn that original song Oscar nomination and three others, including the song score nomination. Blake Edwards was back in the musical genre for the first time since working on the Bing Crosby college comedy High Time in 1960. After that, he introduced Holly Golightly and Inspector Clouseau to international movie audiences and cemented himself as a top director. He had released at least one movie every year since 1955, but took a break in 1969. During that year, he married Julie Andrews one year after they both divorced their respective spouses. They had known each other for years, but began a romantic relationship when both of their marriages ended. They wasted no time collaborating on a film project, with Julie Andrews playing the titular Darling Lily, a singer entertaining the crowds during World War I. She's also a spy for the Germans, thanks in part to her part German heritage and connection to her German uncle. The main plot of the film involves Lily getting secret information from pilot Bill Larrabee, played by Rock Hudson. Of course, Lily falls in love with Bill, and that complicates things. The musical gave Henry Mancini his first opportunity to write a real song score for the movies. His lyricist partner, Johnny Mercer, might have been hesitant to go back into musicals after the disasters he created on Broadway in the 1950s but he and Mancini worked on four songs that weave in and out of the movie as performances that Lily sings on stage, with the exception of one. The song that got the Oscar nomination was Whistling Away the Dark, a strange title for the song since the phrase that is sung is Whistling in the Dark. But anyway, the song comes pre-credits, and it starts very much like the 1935 Oscar winner Lullaby of Broadway, with Lily shown only from the neck up in a spotlight as she sings about living in a bleak world where whistling helps people keep their spirits soaring. It's a lovely waltz that shows us what we already know, that Julie Andrews is a fantastic singer. Just like a 
child who late from school walks bravely home through the park to keep their spirits soaring and keep the night at bay, neither quite knowing which way they are going, they sing the shadows There's a reprise of the song about 35 minutes later, when Lily and Bill are spending a romantic afternoon together. Instead of Julie Andrews, it's the typical Henry Mancini chorus singing a few lines of the song before Mancini's melody closes it out, with an accordion completing the song.
After the war ends and Lily is somehow able to escape being tried for espionage, she is seen performing Whistling Away the Dark on stage. She's in the same costume, with the same lighting as we saw in the beginning of the movie. At first, I thought we were seeing the same performance from the beginning of the movie, but soon we see that it's different. There are soldiers standing in the wings this time, and during the musical bridge, Lily stops briefly when she notices one of the soldiers, thinking it's Bill. When she finishes, the lights come up, and Bill is there to greet her with a kiss. Darling Lily has a title song that is performed during the film's blank screen overture, describing Andrews' character as an entertainer who is keeping spirits up for the soldiers in the trenches. It could be argued that Whistling Away the Dark is the better song, and as we know, the Academy is a sucker for title songs, but apparently not this one. Darling Lily wasn't a darling to movie audiences, probably because they didn't like seeing Julie Andrews as a villain. Critics didn't like that Blake Edwards couldn't figure out if he wanted to make an outright comedy or a war drama, and the movie made just shy of $9 million. But something good came out of the movie. Blake Edwards took his experiences making the movie and put it on film 10 years later for the satirical movie S.O.B., which features the famous scene of Julie Andrews exposing her breasts. The poor turnout for Darling Lily was the death knell for the partnership between Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer. Mancini was doing well as a film composer and could go on with a solid career without dabbling into songwriting. Johnny Mercer, on the other hand, was clinging to any bit of success he could get as songwriters of his caliber were not so much in demand anymore. Plus, Johnny Mercer's renowned snail's pace at writing songs tended to irritate Mancini and the filmmakers who wanted songs ready a lot sooner. Neither of them wanted to mention it publicly, but their collaboration, lucrative though it was, might have been disastrous for their careers with each passing song. In the 1960s, Sergio Leone filmed a bunch of movies in Italy that were set in the American Western frontier. They were called Spaghetti Westerns, and they made stars out of Clint Eastwood and others. 
1970, Jerry Hopper made his return to directing films after about a decade in television with a Western shot not in Italy, but in Israel. That movie was called Madrone, named for the gunfighter in the movie who helps a nun reach Santa Fe and avoid another Indian massacre. The movie is bad, in spite of the appearance of actress Leslie Caron as the nun. If the only song in the film, called Till Love Touches Your Life, hadn't been nominated for an Oscar, the movie might have disappeared into oblivion. But actually, one would argue that Madrone pretty much still has fallen into oblivion in spite of the Oscar nomination. Before the opening credits appear, Caron's nun Antoinette and others in a wagon train are ambushed by Indians, where Caron is left for dead. During the opening credits, she finds a mule and begins setting off through the desert. Also riding through the desert is Madrone, played by Emmy-nominated actor Richard Boone. As we see the two of them riding seemingly toward each other, we hear the song, Till Love Touches Your Life. In a film featuring a nun, it seems weird to have a love song featured, doesn't it? But the song as it is performed in the opening credits is really about Madrone and his life as a restless wanderer. Until he finds love, the song says, he'll never find a place to call home. A highly energetic guitar keeps the song bouncing forward.
that live reaches out and touches your life. Over the course of the movie, Madrone becomes attracted to Antoinette and they share a brief kiss. After Madrone is shot by Indians at the end of the film, he lays dying while remembering Antoinette's face. It's a woman who now sings Till Love Touches Your Life, a little bit more triumphantly this time. We feel that Madrone has finally felt love and is at peace, even though it's in his final minutes. And as he draws his last breath, he seems to be happy with that. The song continues as Antoinette rides off on her mule. I get the impression that the woman singing is stepping in for Antoinette to express her feelings. Many of the crew members on Madrone came from Italy to work on the movie. One of them was composer Riz Ortolani, who had been trying to find the same level of notoriety that his Italian colleague Ennio Morricone had after writing music for the Sergio Leone Westerns in 1960s. After receiving an Oscar nomination for co-writing that song, More, from the documentary Mondo Cane in 1963, Ortolani stayed in Italy for almost all of his composing jobs, writing music for nearly 100 schlock films that did nothing to raise his profile. In 1970, Ordolani looked outside his native land for work and found it with Madrone 
and other movies partially produced by non-Italians. Ortolani composed the music for Till Love Touches Your Life, with Arthur Hamilton writing the lyrics. Hamilton hit his peak in the mid-1950s with the song Cry Me a River, which became a fairly big hit when Julie London recorded it in 1955. Till Love Touches Your Life had no chance of a being a million record seller because no one ever stepped into a studio to record it, other than the film's two performers, Jan Daly and Richard Williams, for the soundtrack album. That album got a very, very, very limited release in the United States, which didn't help the exposure of the song. This is one of those songs that got through to the final five thanks to the Academy rule that all ten of the semifinalists were screened for music branch voters to give each song an equal chance of getting noticed. How the song made it into the top ten itself is a mystery, especially since the movie appeared on very few screens in the United States. So, from a movie about a gunfighter falling in love with a nun, to a movie about a Catholic priest in love with a social worker. That movie is Pieces of Dreams, and features the nominated title song written by composer Michelle Legrand and lyricist Alan and Marilyn Bergman. The movie is just as bad as Madrone, going nowhere in particular and not really having anything to say other than Robert Forster's priest feeling conflicted about violating his vows. At least we have the decent title song, which replaced the name of the novel on which this is based, The Wine and the Music. Not really sure what that has to do with the story, but at least the Bergman submitted a song that gave the film a better title. The song comes after Forster's priest Gregory goes on a romantic trip with Lauren Hutton's Pamela. The song, about a boy searching for his identity, plays during this montage and is highlighted not so much by the lyrics, but by Legrand's rising melody. The song seems sorrowful and cautionary about this relationship, while the images suggest happiness. On the surface, Gregory is happy, but as we'll find out as the film progresses, he's desperately searching for the little boy found. Little boy lost In search of little boy found You go a-wandering, wandering Stumbling, tumbling round Round When will you find What's on the tip of your mind Why are you blind To all you ever were Never were Really are Nearly are Little boy falls In search of little boy true Will you be ever done Traveling Always unraveling you Fishing in streams 
pieces of dreams Those pieces will never fit What is the sense of it? Little boy blue Don't let your little sheep roam It's time, come blow your horn Meet the moon, look and see Can you be far from home? In the end, Gregory leaves the priesthood and walks hand-in-hand with Pamela. Pieces of Dreams returns as the film ends with a little more optimistic tone in the new lyrics. As the song says, Gregory has gotten tired keeping himself from finding his true self, which he has long believed might not be as a priest. The door is now open and those Pieces of Dreams are now available to him. of little boy found gets weary wandering wandering stumbling Bergman has counted Pieces of Dreams as one of her favorite songs, but never made a comment about the film's quality. She and her husband, Alan, were able to find two meanings in one song so that it could be played twice in the film, something they were starting to do very well. Peggy Lee sings the song both times in the film, but hers wasn't the first recording released to the public. That belonged to Johnny Mathis, who got a big hit in fall 1970 with Pieces of Dreams, finding himself in the top 10 on the easy listening charts. Peggy Lee's recording of Pieces of Dreams was the B-side of the single One More Ride on the Merry-Go-Round, and as a B-side recording, it got very little radio play. The eventual Oscar nomination five months after its release didn't help sales, and it was up to the song's merits in the film 
and the pedigree of the Bergmans and Michelle Legrand as previous Oscar winners to help Pieces of Dreams fight to become an Oscar winner. The fifth nominated song comes from the movie Lovers and Other Strangers, a movie about a bunch of people with mildly interesting marital problems while two young lovers prepare for their wedding. The movie is adapted from a Broadway play that has some good lines, but is filled with an even better cast. In 1970, you couldn't get much better than future Oscar winners Cloris Leachman and Diane Keaton, the previous year's Oscar winner Gig Young, and uncredited Sylvester Stallone as one of the groomsmen, and Anne Mira, who was the mother of the five-year-old future actor and director named Ben Stiller. Richard Castellano was the lone cast member who would earn an Oscar nomination for his role as the father of the groom and the father of a married son who was interested in divorcing Keaton's character. It was the same role he played in the Broadway play, which earned him a Tony Award nomination. Fred Carlin was in charge of the music for the film, but there really isn't an underscore to speak of. There are three songs that he wrote with Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin, the two lead singers of the rock band Bread. The four members of Bread, which included David Gates and Mike Botts, started performing together in 1968 but didn't have much success with their early records. Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin wrote most of the songs for Bread, and their collaboration caught the ear of Carlin, who asked them to help with three songs for the film Lovers and Other Strangers. Apparently, Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin were worried about their street cred being ruined if their fans found out they wrote pop songs from a movie comedy. So they used pseudonyms. Rob Royer changed his name to Rob Wilson and Jimmy Griffin to Arthur James. The first song of theirs we hear in the film is Coming Through to Me, which sounds like something the Beatles, the Monkees, and Simon and Garfunkel would have written if they got together to create a song. It's performed in the opening credits and sets up the comedic aspects of the film. But it's the love ballad, for all we know, that earned the Oscar nomination. 
It's about as conventional a love song as you'll get, playing right down the middle. But it's a musical payoff to all the misery that the other couples have been going through the entire movie. As Mike and Susan exchange marriage vows, we hear this song about spending a lifetime letting love grow. The other couples who have complained about being in miserable marriages or considering divorce look at each other in this moment and reconsider their lives. It's a message that love survives if you let it. Love, look at the two of us Strangers in many ways We've got a lifetime to share So much to say And as we go From day to day I'll feel you close to me But time alone will tell Let's take a lifetime to say I knew you well For only time will tell us so Love may grow for all we know. Larry Meredith sang for all we know in the film version, and from what I can tell, this is the only song he ever sang. For someone who would sing an Oscar-nominated song, the internet pretty much assumes that Larry Meredith didn't exist before or after recording this song. His recording appeared as a single with Coming Through to Me, but it didn't get much traction. It was The Carpenters, the brother and sister Richard and Karen, who made For All We Know a big hit. Their version went to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in February 1971, just in time for the Academy's music branch to vote for its list of five nominated songs. It sold a million records, and as the songwriters, Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin had a bigger hit with this song than anything they wrote for Bread. Love, look at the two of us Strangers in many ways We've got a lifetime to share So much to say And 
Now that we've heard the five nominated songs for 1970, let's talk about those three films that were nominated for original song score but didn't get a song nominated. The first one is the documentary Let It Be, which followed the Beatles as they were recording what would be their final album together. Knowing that it's their final album makes the film a bit sentimental to watch, though a lot of the discord that had settled into the group were taken out of the film to make it more celebratory and a glimpse into the songwriting and recording lives of the Beatles. With the film being a documentary, it could be argued that Let It Be should not have qualified for Oscar consideration because the songs were not written for the film. But it could also be argued that they were written for the film since it was decided before the songs were written that a film crew would document the recording process. Let It Be is the first time any of the songs are heard, so they fit the requirements that they have their debut on film before any other recording. If the song score was eligible for an Oscar, then Let It Be or Get Back, two of the most popular songs from this eventual album, would be eligible for the Best Song Award. Let It Be is one of the last songs recorded for the Let It Be album, and it's heard 50 minutes into the film. John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr later complained that the film focuses too much on Paul McCartney, and it's easy to see that in the Let It Be performance. But since he's the one doing lead vocals, it's only right that Paul McCartney get the big close-ups. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be. 
As with many Beatles songs, Let It Be went to number one, and it was the last number one song for the band. It received Grammy nominations for Record of the Year and Song of the Year, but lost both to the Simon and Garfunkel song Bridge Over Troubled Water. That song also dealt with trying to overcome life's struggles, though with a quieter tone. The one thing that the song Let It Be wasn't, was an Oscar nominee, though it got very close as one of the ten songs that were on the preliminary ballot for the Academy's music branch to pick the final five nominees. This was the closest that any Beatles song got to being an Oscar nominee, and I guess the 140 or so members of the Academy's music branch still had some animosity towards the Beatles, a tone that had been set since A Hard Day's Night back in 1964. The song's score nomination for Let It Be was a step in the right direction, but because this was the final collaboration for the Beatles, it was too late for the Academy to get on the Beatles' bandwagon. In addition to writing the songs and the score for Lovers and Other Strangers, Fred Carlin's other project of 1970 was the drama The Baby Maker, and it starred Barbara Hershey as a woman willing to carry another couple's baby for money. Fred Carlin's lyricist was someone he knew well, his wife Marcia. She had been a musician and singer before meeting Fred in 1962. The two married in 1963, and their first songwriting collaboration was The Baby Maker. Instead of using her given name, Marcia Carlin adopted the pseudonym Twyleth Kimry for her songwriting credits as an homage to her Welsh parents. The three songs they wrote don't contribute to the plot, or help us understand the characters any further. But they were original songs, and that must have been enough to score a nomination for Best Song Score. The Carlins wrote three folksy tunes, and the one that played over the opening credits might be viewed as the highlight of the three. It's called People Come and People Go, and it describes the natural cycle of people living their lives and moving on in the natural scheme of things. People come, people go, that's the way it is, I know it is, taking life day by day, that's all I know, that's the why. Why, 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 I only know what I know, 
No Oscar nomination for that song, or two of the other unrelated songs they wrote for the movie, written mostly to serve as musical filler during montages or scenes light on dialogue. Fred Carlin didn't capture lightning twice with the baby maker, since none of the songs were anywhere near the hit that For All We Know was. If not for the specially created category for original song scores that year, the Carlins might not have joined Alan and Marilyn Bergman and Andre and Dory Previn in history books as the third Oscar-nominated married songwriting couple. The Peanuts cartoon strip had been expanded to television in 1966 with the Charlie Brown Christmas, which has become the most popular and most rebroadcast of the TV specials in the Peanuts series. Five more of those specials followed before creator Charles Schultz merged a few of his cartoon stories for the feature film A Boy Named Charlie Brown. Including the title song, the movie featured two other songs written by Rod McEwen, the Oscar-nominated writer of the title song for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. One other song was written by the film's director Bill Melendez, as well as the film's music arranger John Trotter and graphic designer Al Sheen. They all shared in the original song score nomination with Vince Guaraldi, whose jazzy composition served as the film's underscore. The title song might have been the best bet for an Oscar nomination, performed by a raspy-throated McEwen as we see Charlie Brown making a kite and then trying to fly it. The song lyrics describe Charlie Brown as a very happy kid in the middle of a dreary day, and that we can all aspire to be like Charlie Brown. Like the shadows of the morning To climb up to the August afternoon Charlie has a way Of picking up the day Just by walking slowly in a room Maybe it's a kind of magic That only little boys can do But seeing Charlie smile Can make you stop a while And get you feeling glad A boy named Charlie Brown. Unlike The Baby Maker, the songs that McEwen wrote have a point to the plot. After Charlie Brown wins the spelling bee, McEwen sings Champion Charlie Brown, the one moment in his life when Charlie Brown is seemingly loved by all his friends. And the one song that Trotter and others wrote came during his prep for the spelling bee called I Before E. It's a nice song score that was probably too specific to the movie and the characters to become hit records, but it helped the movie do well at the box office. 
And then there was another song written for a film in 1970 that has outlived just about all of the songs you've heard in this episode, with the exception of those from the Beatles. Robert Altman's Korean War comedy M.A.S.H. opens with the song Suicide is Painless, which doesn't really mean much in the opening credits, though the word suicide likely perked up ears in the movie theaters when the movie was released in January 1970. The song approves of one committing suicide instead of living in a dreary world that will lead to death anyway. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see Suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please The game of life is hard to play I'm gonna lose it anyway The losing card I'll someday lay this is all I have to say. Suicide is painless. Suicide. It brings on many changes. changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. The sword of time will pierce our skins. It doesn't hurt when it its way on in the pain grows stronger watch it grin suicide is painless it brings on many changes and I can take or leave it if I please a brave man once requested questions that are key is it to be or not to be and I replied oh why ask me The song's primary purpose was for a scene about an hour into the movie, when the resident dentist at the Army Hospital decides to commit suicide after he thinks he can no longer satisfy women. The dentist's name is Walter Painless Waldowski, and he is given a pill that he thinks will kill him instantly. If you haven't seen the film, you're missing a great homage to the famous Last Supper painting by Leonardo da Vinci in this moment. As Painless prepares to die, his assistant sings Suicide is Painless to lull him to sleep. 
Music for the song was written by Oscar winner Johnny Mandel, who received an Oscar for writing the music for The Shadow of Your Smile. And this is almost a 180-degree turn from his Oscar-winning tune, but he seemed to follow the demands of director Robert Altman, who asked that the song for the suicide scene be the stupidest song ever written. Altman himself tried to tackle the lyrics, but when he couldn't write a stupid song, he asked his 15-year-old son, Mike, to try. According to an online biography of Johnny Mandel, Mike Altman wrote the lyrics to the song in five minutes and handed it to Mandel, who put it to music. The resulting song was a major hit, not just in 1970, but many years later when M.A.S.H. became one of the most popular TV comedies of all time. Running for 11 seasons and 256 episodes, M.A.S.H. would feature the instrumental version of Suicide is Painless every time, giving Mandel a huge royalty check for more than a decade. Robert Altman reportedly said that his son Mike earned more than $1 million for his work on Suicide is Painless when M.A.S.H. went to television so it seems that Mike became a millionaire for just five minutes of work. MASH received five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, but Suicide is Painless was not a nominee. The music branch did like it enough to put it on the preliminary list of ten songs that included Let It Be and the eventual five nominees. If it had gotten enough support from the music branch, Mike Altman would have been the youngest songwriting nominee by ten years, taking the title from Marvin Hamlish. Even though it did not get an original song nomination, Suicide is Painless was listed on the AFI's top 100 songs of the first 100 years of cinema. Even the Hollywood Foreign Press, which liked to recognize offbeat movie songs, ignored Suicide is Painless when the Golden Globe nominations were announced. Four of the five Oscar-nominated songs from 1970 were included, except for all we know. In its place was another silly song called The Ballad of Little Foss and Big Halsey, coming from the film of the same name starring Robert Redford. Johnny Cash wrote the song with his frequent collaborator Carl Perkins, and the song pretty much gives us an idea of who the two title characters are. Little boss and big halsey Men and their machines Motorbike racing was the game Always pushing on for one more win It takes nerve to take that curve Nerves of steel climbing that hill Twisting that grip And Big Halsey Tomorrow's just another day Another day to race away One more win, that's all we've gotta do It takes guts When the going gets rough You gotta be tough Give it your best facing that death I strongly recommend you not see this film unless you are a Robert Redford fan. 
And if you are a Robert Redford fan, chances are you've already seen it and agree with me. Whistling Away the Dark won the Golden Globe for Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer, giving the eternally pessimistic Johnny Mercer a reason to have hope that there was a fifth Oscar in his sights two months after the Golden Globe win. Of course, Julie Andrews wasn't going to sing Whistling Away the Dark at the Academy Awards, especially since she had never sung any of the other nominated songs she originated. Oscar winner Shirley Jones, who was becoming a big TV star thanks to her work as the matriarch of the fictional Partridge family, sang that song. It was a little bit of promotional crossover for the ABC network since the Partridge family aired every Friday on ABC, which was the new network of the Academy Awards telecast. But giving Shirley Jones the job of singing in place of Julie Andrews was not the big dust-up over performers of the original songs at the Academy Awards ceremony on April 15, 1971. It was assumed that the Carpenters would sing For All We Know, since their version was the big hit. But the Academy decided to go for Petula Clark, citing the need to have well-known movie personalities on stage instead of entertainers known only for singing. Petula Clark got a boost from her performance on Oscar night, going into the studio shortly after and recording a version of her own that did pretty well around the world. Thank You Very Much had an interesting presentation on the telecast. Instead of just having someone come out and sing the song, bow, and leave the stage, the producers had four actors sing it in different languages. Sally Kellerman sang it in English, Ricardo Montalban sang it in Spanish, Burt Lancaster sang it in Italian, and Petula Clark finished it out in French. Then the four gathered at the end of the song to close it out. Bert Bacharach, the winner of the Best Song Oscar the previous year, was on hand with wife Angie Dickinson to announce the winner of the Best Original Song of 1970. For the first time, the nominees were read with the names of the films in which they appeared, giving the movies equal promotion with the songs. And if Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin were hoping to keep their moonlighting gig a secret, they didn't keep it a secret after For All We Know was announced as the year's best song. Griffin was the first to speak, and he thanked Rob Royer by name, which probably had fans of the group Bread left with their jaws on the floor if they weren't already when they saw Griffin and Royer on stage. But one has to wonder if any fans of the group Bread were watching the Academy Awards anyway. But after Griffin spoke, Royer thanked Griffin, officially ending the need for them to have pseudonyms in the first place. But now that they were Oscar winners, they likely were happy to showcase their ability to write pop songs. The press didn't jump on this double cross until about two weeks later. And when I say the press... I mean only Chicago freelance columnist Irv Kupsinet. He wrote that 
Hollywood is still chuckling over it, even though it wasn't as shocking as someone like writer Dalton Trumbo winning an Oscar under a pseudonym during the blacklist period. It didn't seem to ruffle feathers, but it caused the Academy to revise the official record to list Royer's and Griffin's names as official nominees with an AKA for also known as next to their pseudonyms. Riz Ortolani never found his way back to the Oscars after 1970. He was never able to get out of the B-movie grind, and the only movie that he worked on with some degree of notoriety was Brother, Son, Sister Moon, the Franco Zeffirelli movie about St. Francis of Assisi that showed promise was, was poorly reviewed. Ortolani died in 2014 at the age of 87, and it was believed that he wrote the scores to more than 200 films in a 45-year career. Though the Academy went with the conventional love ballad as their choice for the best song of the year, there was a major sea change in their selection for the best song score of 1970. Instead of giving the Oscar to the tried-and-true duo of Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer, or to Leslie Brickus for his solo writing efforts for Scrooge, it was the rockers from Liverpool the Beatles, who earned their only Academy Award for the songs they wrote for Let It Be. This was the first time that rock music was not only nominated by the Academy, but given an award. The Beatles were in the process of officially separating, and appearing on an award show in the United States was never going to happen. Accepting the award was Quincy Jones, who was serving as musical director for the Academy Awards, the first time a black man held that job. Jones had tried to convince Paul McCartney to attend the show, but no dice. So if giving the Oscar to the Beatles caused a rumble in the movie business, a 9.1 earthquake was coming just two months after the 1971 ceremony. We'll talk about the song that caused a major upheaval on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. You don't want to miss it. Before we close out this discussion of the nominated songs of 1970, I want to give a special thank you to Andreas Bertram for sponsoring this episode. I really enjoyed sharing the stories with you on today's episode. And if you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, please send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. Thank you to everyone for listening to the Best Song Podcast and for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.